0: It was said of C.S. Lewis, uh, whom I think was the greatest Christian philosopher of the 20th century, that he did not care much for the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, to which Lewis replied as he was very good at doing, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount. If caring for here means liking or even enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat in his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage, Sermon on the Mount, with tranquil pleasure. Well, I would agree with that. In fact, I would state that any verse of Scripture that quotes Jesus and begins with the word, beware, <laughs> is far from tranquil. And if you've got your Bible open to... Matthew chapter 6, you'll notice that the first word in the ESV of verse 1 is the word beware. You're about to hear a sermon within a series of sermons about a sermon, fortunately by Jesus, and it's recorded for us by one of his followers, Matthew. And I will not purport to say that I'm going to be able to uh, improve upon this sermon, but My opportunity this morning is to help us maybe catch a glimpse as to what Jesus is telling his original audience and therefore telling us as well through this sermon. We've been going through the gospel according to Matthew for some time now, and we will be for many months in the future, and we discovered that Matthew's purpose in even writing this gospel was to present Jesus as king, so that will be a recurring theme Jesus' purpose in this Sermon on the Mount, which is comprised of chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we're literally just past the third of of the way through. We're going to start here in in chapter 6. His purpose is to present what kingdom life is all about. And so if you've not been with us here for the past several Sundays, or maybe you've not been watching online either, I'd encourage you to go back to our website. In fact, I'd urge you to do that and listen to or watch the messages on Matthew chapter 5. They're excellent, and they really funnel into what Jesus is going to talk about today as he takes a bit of a turn in his sermon. Now, he is literally preaching this sermon on the side of a mountain, on the slope, overlooking, we believe, the Sea of Galilee. And I can imagine that the views would have been spectacular. Matthew chapter 4, verse 25 tells us that uh, there were great crowds who had come from all over the place, from local uh, towns and villages as well as places far beyond, even as far as Jerusalem, which was a few days' walking journey away, and even past Jerusalem and beyond the Jordan River. What Jesus has been doing in this sermon so far, and he's going to continue it today, is he has been turning the perspectives of his audience, which was comprised of hundreds, if not thousands of people, religious leaders, lay people alike, craftsmen, fishermen, all different kinds of people, young and old, boys and girls. He'd been turning their perspectives. In fact, he'd been turning their expectations, even their interpretations, of the Old Testament Scriptures, he had been turning it on its head. He had been turning it upside down, or what I would prefer to say, he had been turning the perspectives right side up. At the conclusion of last week's sermon here, Taylor correctly emphasized the point of the the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 5. Look at that, verse 48. He concludes that portion of the sermon by saying, "'You therefore must be perfect, "'as your heavenly Father is perfect.'" Taylor correctly defined that as wholeness or lacking nothing necessary to completeness. We might use the word maturity. So Jesus has been talking about some very specific things in his sermon so far, ending with that emphasis on completeness, maturity, that we must be that, just as our Heavenly Father is that for us. And now he's going to pivot, so to speak, and begin to talk about some very practical things. He turns to some very practical matters that that crop up when people are trying to put their professed willingness to serve God into daily practice. Jesus will warn against a wrong kind of righteousness or piety, which his audience has been practicing. They've been practicing it not to conform to the will of God and his perfection or his wholeness, but rather, as we'll see, they had been practicing it in order to somehow gain human approval. And so the first verse of chapter 6 actually lays the foundation for the remaining 17 verses, the next 17 verses that follow on on its, on its heels, where Jesus challenges this popular view of three very significant parts of the Jewish life, namely almsgiving, or giving to the poor, Prayer, and then finally, verses 16 through 18, which we won't look at today, fasting. He's going he's to challenge the popular perspective. He's going to challenge the religious leaders' interpretations. He's going to challenge these components that made up what it meant to be a, a pious Jew. Look at verse 1 with me. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order... To be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Like Jesus has already done in his sermon, he begins here with a contrast. And he's contrasting what is being done before others, kind of like for their sake, versus what's being done before God. And he urges his audience to beware. Well, that's a contraction, actually, right, in the English language of be aware. Beware. Be aware. Or take heed, your Bible might say. Attend to being attentive. Concentrate on something. Let me put it to you this way. In our vernacular, it would be as if Jesus, a third of the way through his sermon, notices, oh yeah, Peter's kind of nodding off here. He's been He's been fishing all night, and so he's a little tired. There's a religious leader in the back over there that's also kind of dozing. People aren't really paying attention. So I think what Jesus is saying by this very strong term is, listen up! Pay attention! I'm about to show you how to make what I've been telling you real in everyday life. And I'm going to do it by talking about three things that are very, very important to how you view yourselves in terms of your own personal piety. (laughs) He's doing the same thing for us today, right? And I won't yell again, but hopefully that did catch our attention. The verse here, verse 1, is actually expressed in, in a plural form. He's talking to you, plural. So he's speaking in sort of a general sense. In the ensuing verses, he's going to direct his attention using the singular. So he's going to individualize his instruction to every single person in his audience, this term, righteousness, a good synonym for that word here, it would be piety, the practical exercise of religious devotion. Don't think Paul's definition of righteousness like in Romans, but this is really what Jesus is referencing here, the practice of piety, the practical exercise of their religious devotion. Now, the language of this verse reminds us of a verse in chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. I'll put it on the screen, but I'd invite you to look at it in your Bible as well, where Jesus had said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the last time I preached on the Sermon on the Mount was here, and that was several weeks ago, and I preached on this passage, and I made the comment then, and I'll make it again. Basically, we're toast. Right, for my righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, I, they wouldn't have stood much of a chance, and I don't stand much of a chance. He's going to build on that, though, today. And what's interesting to this verse of chapter 6, verse 1, it does not contradict an earlier verse in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 16. Look, look again. Look back at chapter 5. Just go to verse 16. Jesus had said in the same way, let your light shine before others so so that they may see your good works. That seems to be at, at, at odds here to what he is now saying about not practicing our righteousness before other people. But here's the key. Notice the rest of verse 16. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The problem with the people... Described here in verse 1 of chapter 6 is that they have been seeking to attract to themselves the glory that is only to be directed to God. Now, when I preached that passage on chapter 5, verses 20 to 26, I said that the overarching theme was kingdom living is greater than the traditions of men. Even those traditions that were built on Old Testament Scripture. Today's passage, I want to kind of use that same formula. Kingdom living is greater than the hypocrisy of men. Jesus continues to apply principles that he has already introduced in his sermon, but here now he's going to illustrate how this is going to get worked out or fleshed out via three parallel case studies. He's going to talk about almsgiving, He's going to talk about prayer, and we'll focus on those two today. And then in a couple of weeks, he'll talk uh, in the sermon. We'll talk about fasting. These are three incredibly important to the Jews in the audience and how they would define their righteousness their piety before God. And so Jesus is basically um, scratching where they're itching, so to speak. He's going right after it to make the points that he's about to make. He's already told his audience about this superior righteousness that was expected of them. And now he's going to warn them of the danger of religious hypocrisy. Kingdom living comes by listening to Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do. This is his sermon. And we're going to listen to his words. And he's going to teach us the right stuff. Even that phrase right there reminds me. uh, Earlier this week I had a conversation with a member of our church. We were talking about teaching and what it takes to be a good teacher and so forth. And the the response given to me was, I'm not sure by this individual, I'm not sure that I I maybe have some of the necessary gifts for teaching. But I do know this. When I teach, I teach the right stuff. (laughs) I love that. Jesus is going to do the same thing. He's going to teach the right stuff here. And we're going to learn directly from him. So here's what I think is a central concept, or we like to call it here the big idea, for these eight verses. Jesus warns against hypocrisy, revealing that kingdom living is greater than the attention-seeking actions of men. should be on the screen. Let me say it again. Jesus warns against hypocrisy, revealing that kingdom living is greater than the attention-seeking actions of men. Now, Jesus will contrast hypocrisy with kingdom living. And I believe he's going to give us four truths. I'll call them axioms. Four axioms to consider to help us better understand this. I'll mention them now, and we'll put them on the screen here in just a minute. But quickly, before I read the passage, he's going to give a warning. He's going to give a guarantee. He's going to give instruction and he's going to give an assurance. Let's look at verses 2 through 8. Follow as I read these verses to us. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let let your left hand know What your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. That they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. And shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I love that. Jesus is talking on a totally different, a totally higher plane both literally, he's on the side of a mountain, but also figuratively. And the theme of his sermon continues. That is, that the greater righteousness uh, is, is demanded of Jesus' followers, of Jesus' disciples. As I was reading verses 2 through 8, did you see the axioms? Did you hear the axioms? Let me give them to you again. We'll put them on the screen. Let me spell them out a little bit. In the two case studies that we're going to look at today, a case study on almsgiving or giving to the needy and a case study on prayer, Jesus is going to highlight four things. The first is a warning. And his warning is this, that hypocrites seek attention and praise of men. That's the warning. Hypocrites seek attention and praise of men. He's also going to give, secondly, a guarantee. And the guarantee is this, hypocrites get what they seek and no more. Hypocrites get what they seek and no more. And then lovingly, Jesus will give instruction. He's going to instruct first how to give and then secondly, how to pray. And then later in verses 16 to 18, he's going to give specific instruction How to fast. And by the way, I'd encourage you to look at those three verses, 16, 17, and 18, look at them this afternoon, and you'll see the the same structure here as we're going to talk about today. The fourth thing that, that Jesus gives as an axiom is an assurance, namely, that kingdom living yields rewards from our Father who sees in secret. So there's a warning, there's a guarantee, there's instruction, and there's assurance. When I was first preparing to preach this message, I was going to outline and structure the message around those four axioms, because that's how I think. I'm of the Western world, and that's how I logically think and put it together. And then yesterday afternoon, I realized, and I told Debbie this, I said, oh, wow, I think I'm supposed to just focus on the two case studies, almsgiving and prayer, Sure, these four things can come out, but just kind of go along the flow that Jesus went. <laughs> I don't think she put her hands on her hips, but she did look at me like, really? You know, it's like, duh. Uh, of course, why not? So that's what we're going to do. We're going we're to walk through these two case studies, and we're going to see these four axioms kind of just bubble to the surface naturally. It's really fascinating. Before we do that, though, I want to define this term hypocrite because it's used a couple of times. And, by the way, it's a very popular term in our current culture, right? Hypocrite, hypocrisy, we love throwing that back and forth and around at each other. The actual Greek term from which we get this English word hypocrite, it sounds very similar, similar to it, but it, um, it actually occurs 13 times in this gospel according to Matthew. It's an important term, it's an important concept that he keeps coming back to. Now, in older Greek literature, long before the time of Jesus, long before the first century, the word itself stood for an actor in the theater. That was the word that was used to describe someone who would play a part, a stage player, in the theater. But by the first century, by the time of Jesus' audience listening to him the term itself would have been, come to be used on a, kind of an everyday occurs, uh, occurrence for anyone, not just a theater person, but for anyone who played a role, kind of viewing the stage, the, the world as their stage, and, and play acting in, in, the, in their, their world. In other words, a pretender, an impersonator, someone who plays a part that's not real. Well, in these verses that we're looking at today, hypocrites were people who acted a concern for the poor or a devotion to prayer, but their true concern was to establish a reputation for generosity, a reputation for devotion, a reputation for piety. What I find fascinating here is that What Jesus is going to focus on, he's he's going to emphasize not so much this conscious attempt to deceive other people as the false perspective that the hypocrite has of reality, which prevents a hypocrite from seeing things as God sees them. In a sense, Jesus is going to yank back the curtain On this is what God sees. This is what kingdom living is about. Not your false interpretations and perspectives and these masks that you wear. Not at all. In fact, it's interesting because it's as if Jesus is saying to them he's not going to focus so much that they are deceivers as they are horribly self-deceived. And he's, he's bringing this to the forefront of their thinking. So let's look at the first case study beginning in verse uh, 2. Look, look again at verse 2 with me. This case study of giving to the needy or almsgiving goes for three verses, 2, 3, and 4. Verse 2 reads, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Giving to the poor, or almsgiving, was a significant part of Jewish social life. This wasn't just about religious piety, but it was about the social fabric of their life. They didn't have a welfare system. They didn't have social security like we do. Now, they believed that almsgiving was a spiritual duty based on multiple Old Testament passages, which is correct. And by the time Jesus comes along, they already had a well-organized system of relief for the poor. And it was based in the synagogues. It wasn't done by the, by the government. It was based in the synagogues. In fact, the funding for the system depended on contributions from members of the faith community. There were even officials that their official role was to go around and collect weekly uh, goods and money for the poor. In fact, local laws specified that if a man resided in a town or village for 30 days, he then became liable for contributing to their local soup kitchen, as we might call it. And if he stayed longer, he would be liable to actually putting money into the charity box. So this was a system that was part of the very fabric of the life of his audience. Even as I'm describing that system, though, and based on what we've already read, can't you already see the problem here? There's all kinds of opportunity for ostentation, for making a big show, a big deal out of participating in this system. So Jesus gives a warning. And his warning is that hypocrites seek attention and praise of men. The deed that was done in order, was being done in order to secure a reputation as opposed to serving God. And Jesus is calling them to task. There's no written accounts that I could find, at least, on trumpet blasts being associated with almsgiving. However, we do know that some of the public fasts that were um, celebrated during that time uh, would be proclaimed by the sounding of trumpets. And oftentimes, during those fast days, uh, they would have prayers. Prayer for rain, for example. It would be recited even out in the streets. And so it's widely thought that almsgiving somehow ensured the efficacy of those fasts, those prayers. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he's simply calling to their attention something that would have registered with his, the, the mind of his audience right away that, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, they loved to posture themselves as being the ultimate law keepers. Unfortunately... One of their greatest weaknesses was that they loved men's praise more than God's praise. That's not what kingdom living is. In John chapter 12, the gospel writer of John says this about the Pharisees. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ouch. In Matthew chapter 23... And trust me, we'll eventually get to Matthew chapter 23. That's many months in the the future, I'm sure. But when we get there, we're going to discover that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes who were in the audience here at the Sermon on the Mount apparently didn't pay a whole lot of attention. They certainly didn't apply what Jesus had preached because in Matthew 23, Jesus will specifically take them to task for their hypocrisy. It's a difficult chapter. I'm trusting that I won't have to preach that one. Um, They were doing good deeds for the sake of public relations, for the sake of making a good impression, but for their own personal benefit. And this motivation for almsgiving, it's hypocritical. It shows that uh, they were pretending to honor God and serve other people, while actually they were distracting attention from God. So Jesus gives a guarantee. He warns them, and then he says, but here's your guarantee. Hypocrites get what they seek, and no more. This praise by others that you've yearned for, that's described in verse 2. By the way, that's the same word that's used in chapter 5, verse 16, about giving glory or praise to God. They've usurped that. They've They've made a mess of that. In fact, interesting, Don Carson, who has written a great commentary on this book of Matthew, former New Testament professor at a seminary outside of Chicago, he said in his commentary, to attempt to live in accord with the righteousness spelled out in the preceding verses of the Sermon on the Mount, but to do it out of motives eager for men's applause, is to prostitute that righteousness. It's harsh, but true. You know what? There's a popular term today. Let me just relate this to us. There's a popular term in our culture for this kind of behavior. It's called virtue signaling. We want to signal our virtue to other people by all manner of, of ways. And what Jesus is saying to his audience is, no, that's not what giving to the poor, that's not what almsgiving is about, to somehow signal your virtue to your fellow human being that you're a really good person here so in verse 2 jesus says truly i say to you here's the guarantee they've received their reward the term that he uses for they've received is a term that was a it was a commercial term that literally meant to receive a sum in full and then get a receipt for it so they can't expect a reward from god because they've already been paid in full And they already have the receipt for it. It's the praise of other men. These people that Jesus is addressing, they've secured their reward. They've aimed at reputation, and they got it. And so they have no right to expect any further benefit or divine approval. Wow, I I don't want that. So we have this warning. We have this guarantee. So Jesus lovingly gives us some instruction. How to give in the kingdom life. In verse 3, he says... But when you give to the needy, do not let your your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Kingdom living does cultivate a genuine spiritual practice of charity. But it's a matter of the heart. It's not a mechanical rule that Jesus is giving here. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because we tend to stumble over stuff like this. We tend to say, okay, what does that mean? I got to figure out how to write a check left handed. So I. Well, no, that's not the point. The point that Jesus is making is that this is a matter in the heart. Our giving is neither before men waiting for the clapping to begin, nor is it before ourselves waiting for our left hand to applaud our right hand. No, our giving, our service to the poor, is before God. He sees. Or knows our secret heart, and he rewards us with the discovery that just as Jesus has said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Jesus gives this assurance that kingdom living yields rewards from our Father who sees in secret. And I think those rewards reflect both something to come in the future, in that future kingdom age when we are literally face-to-face with Jesus on the other side of physical death. But it's also things that we experience now. It is is more blessed to give than to receive. The statement that God sees in secret there in verse 4, also often misquoted, it actually reflects the Old Testament understanding that there's nothing hidden from our Heavenly Father. He knows everything. We're not going to catch Him by surprise by this, because He knows everything. He sees in secret. Jesus' disciples, His followers, must themselves be so given to God that their giving is prompted by obeying God. And then... Let their compassion on men flow from that. Then their Father who sees or knows what's, what's going on in secret, he will reward them. know, the Apostle Paul, just to make a connection, the Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he's commending them for giving um, an offering to hurting saints, brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And he says uh, in, this, in his second letter to them, chapter 8, that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And that's the correct order. That's the correct priority here. And that's part of the assurance that comes by Jesus himself. Well, let's look at the second case study. uh, This one is on prayer, verses 5 through 8. What's fascinating to me is, for those of you that know me and have heard me, a talk about God's Word before, you know that a favorite adage of mine, a favorite teaching adage of mine, is spaced repetition is a key to learning. And I think Jesus is practicing that here. It's as if he says, okay, I've given you these four things through the case study of almsgiving. I want to make sure you really get it. I want to make sure you understand. So he's going to repeat himself and now talk about prayer. And then he'll repeat himself again in, in several verses and talk about Fasting. He wants to make sure that, his, that the audience here gets it, what he's what he's actually saying. So notice again verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. It's almost a direct repeat of verse 2. This being seen by others is the same as being seen by them in verse 1 and praised by others in verse 2. Here's the warning. Hypocrites seek attention and praise of men. In both of these case studies, plus the one on fasting, Jesus is is assuming that his disciples will be giving. Notice he says, when you give, when you give. He's assuming they'll be praying. When you pray, when you pray, when you pray. But prayer is communion with God. It's it's not a means of increasing one's reputation. Prayer is not to be used to build a reputation for piety, but solely to engage with God in conversation. He references the physical posture of prayer. When you, you love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners... That, that was a, a normal physical posture for prayer. That's not anything really unusual there. But that's not the important issue anyways. Physical posture is not the, the point that Jesus is making here. The, the point he's making is the posture of the heart. What's going on in, inside the, the attitude of the mind and the heart. Prayer is not to be used to, to gain plaudits from people. You know, we pray in kind of what I used to call stained glass language. Stained glass verbiage to 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 gain the approval of people. Nor is prayer meant to summarize a sermon. I've heard that done before. Uh, worse yet, I've I've heard prayer be used as a form of gossip. Growing up in a Baptist church, going to Wednesday night prayer meeting every single night of uh, Wednesday night of my childhood, that would often be the case in our in our prayer meetings. No, that's. That's, that's not what, what, what prayer is about here. It's, it's, nor is it to communicate information about something to an audience. Maybe you make an announcement. I remember someone praying at our church in Bangkok, and basically they were giving an announcement as they were ostensibly praying. No, prayer reflects genuine, meaningful, intimate conversation with God. Jesus gives a guarantee again. Once he warns against this, he gives the guarantee that, and it's the same thing in verse 5. It's a repeat of verse 2. Truly, I say to you, they've already received their reward. And then he begins to instruct. And he begins to instruct on, okay, then how do we pray? And why do we pray? And what should we say? Beginning in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. He's he's referencing a a room in the very inner part of the house. Most likely, in Jewish houses of the first century, this would be the only room in the house that you could actually lock. It's oftentimes used as a storeroom. In the present context, the emphasis that Jesus is making is that he's saying, "Go, go somewhere that cannot be observed. Go somewhere where there isn't the temptation to be doing what you're doing, praying to me, so that other people are watching you. Go somewhere where you can be um, in in an intimate relationship with me. In fact, the term father is used 10 times in these 18 verses. It speaks of relationship. It speaks of family intimacy. Jesus is reminding his audience that true piety, true righteousness is impressing God alone. Living our lives knowing that God knows every thought and deed already. And it is His approval alone that matters. I jotted in my sermon notes here. We pray to an audience of one. Right? We serve an audience of one. I preach this sermon to an audience of one. Verse 7. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. There's a little bit of humor here. We don't see it in the English so much, but that the the term empty phrases is actually one word your translation might say meaningless repetition. Same thing. It was actually an onomatopoeic word. You know what that is, right? If not, I'll give you a definition. That's a that's a, uh, the process of creating a word that, that phonetically imitates or suggests the sound that it describes. Words like oink, or meow, or roar, or chirp. And as I said those, you thought of animals, right? You, you thought of an animal that makes that sound. Well, that's what's going on here. These empty phrases, he uses a term that literally means to keep on babbling. And even in the Greek language, it almost sounds like babbling. It came to mean to speak about something without thinking about it. To stammer, to stutter, to repeat without purpose. (laughs) I'm chuckling because as I'm saying that, I'm thinking of the media that we're bombarded with. Talking heads, right? There's a lot of empty phrases. There's a lot of meaningless repetition. Jesus says there's no place for that in prayer. And he says there's no place for many words. The the Gentiles, they think they'll be heard for their many words. That reminds me of the prophet Elijah and his encounter with with the prophets of Baal, right? And they have this this encounter on the top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. And the pagans, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, these prophets, they thought that Prayer was effective only if long, and if they continued to get, heap up empty phrases. And, you know, in, in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a tragic verse. Verse 29 says, at the end of all their incantations and whatnot, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah prays to Almighty God, and he gets a, a definitive answer. King Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes 5. I, I should have put this on on the screen, but you can look it up later. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Listen to this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few." Gentiles or pagans would pile up as many names as possible for the deity to whom they were praying, hoping that at least he would recognize one of those names. He or she, their their god or goddess, would recognize one of those names, and the prayer would be effective. As outsiders to God's covenant community, though, instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs, Gentiles thought they, they had to badger a reluctant deity in order to get him to take notice. Stop just for a second and see what Jesus is doing here. He is comparing the behavior of his Jewish audience to that of pagan Gentiles. Whoa, that is extremely harsh. They would be shamed so deeply, but necessary. And for us, too. Like C.S. Lewis's comment, it's like getting hit with a sledgehammer here in the Sermon on the Mount. But it is so necessary for us as well. Jesus' sermon is critical of viewing prayer as a means of pressuring God into giving us what we think we need. Well, very quickly, look at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Extraordinary, that God knows what we need before we even ask Him. We don't pray in order to somehow gain his favor, but we pray as an expression of trust to God. He already knows our need, and he's waiting for us to express our dependence on him. We don't acquaint God, acquaint God with our needs through our prayers, like, oh, you're right, Tim, I totally forgot that. Thank you for reminding me. That's not what prayer is. No, it's, it's an, we adopt instead a dependent attitude of our heart. And the model prayer that will be Talked about next week, namely the Lord's Prayer is going to get very specific about how to do that. Well, what are the rewards in terms of prayer life that this kind of kingdom living yields? Well, we discover that God is not only omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But He's also, He knows our needs. He's also omnibenevolent. And he tells us later in his narrative, in chapter 25, Jesus is going to tell a parable, and he, at the end of that parable, twice, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. If we pray the way Jesus is instructing us to pray, we'll not only have rewards someday in that eternal state, but we experience the rewards of having him invite us into the joy of serving him in conclusion let me just quickly review the 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 key the key idea again i think is that jesus is warning against hypocrisy and he's revealing that kingdom living is greater than the attention seeking actions of men well here's the good news The good news of Jesus' kingdom is this, is that God's grace is working out his rule, his reign in our lives. And when he is ruling our lives, then he's changing us into the people that he has created us to be. And in fact, that he has redeemed us to be. But you know what? It's possible to to agree with everything Jesus has said in his sermon so far, yet fail to live accordingly. And that's because the very best of our piety, of our human piety, falls short. It's inadequate for salvation. All the righteousness that is required to bring men and women into a relationship with God, all of that has already been performed. It's been performed on our behalf by Jesus. And so when we profess faith in Him and allegiance to King Jesus, then we're given his righteousness, his goodness. That's a really good time to say amen to that. But you know what? Then he expects us to step out in faith and to live out that practical righteousness that he has entrusted to us. So it, it leaves us with a couple of questions. How might a kingdom living perspective change your life? Specifically as it gives, as it relates to giving to the poor, giving to the needy, or specifically as it relates to prayer. Do you, do I know the power of this good news that we talk about, of Jesus' kingdom? Are we continually dependent upon his grace and power to live this life out? And just as he did on that slope of that mountain, he invited his audience to join his kingdom. Enter the kingdom. Join the kingdom. Live life with him as our king. He's doing the same thing today. And so I invite all of us, whether we have made a statement of affirmation that I believe and I have given my life to you, King Jesus, or whether that's brand new, I invite all of us, accept that invitation. Accept it daily. Submit to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Again, your, your word is amazing. Your word is powerful. Although written centuries ago, it still speaks to us loudly and clearly. And especially this portion of your word, Lord Jesus, this sermon that you preached on the side of that mountain. Thank you for preaching it to us today. But help us now, and we need your help. We need that, the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to step into the reality of this, to be able to, to live out the reality of your truth. Would you take the truth of your word and would you drive it deep into our hearts? Cause it to take root there and then to bear fruit. To the praise of your name, to your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.